Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. Welcome along to the first episode of Is This For Credits, the podcast from the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. In this week's episode, Philly and I introduce ourselves, and then we have a poetry reading from Liz Breslin. She reads her poem, Recapture, and then we discuss what went into the making of the poem and what she thinks about us as readers and teachers of it. After that, we then speak to Ruth Richardson, who is a teacher and also part of the Read New Zealand project. She talks about Read New Zealand's work and how we can make the most of it as teachers in the classroom. But not only that, we also talk about what we do with reading in our classrooms, and she provides some really interesting insights into what she's up to. So, Philly, we're here. This is the first episode of our podcast. Yes, yes. I feel peculiar like I'm on the spot all of a sudden, but I wasn't about two minutes ago. So do you reckon, I know that you've actually got to go soon. You've got to pick your son up, as I understand it. So in the time between now and when you go, can I ask some questions? Yes, go for it. What made you want to become a teacher? Um, nothing. I didn't want to become a teacher. And my dad was a teacher and I thought it sounded awful. My degree was in art history and I loved that. But when I started and I had this dream that I would have my own kind of gallery and I, I wanted to work with um, emerging artists in corporate spaces and kind of curate these exhibitions within corporate spaces, which I still think is quite a cool idea. And then so at the time there was the Teach NZ scholarship and so I my qualification basically paid for itself to, to study teaching Um and do my grad dip and I loved it it just clicked and it just fell into place and um, I've just never looked back you know. So do you think that the resistance to doing it in the first place is just because it was the family business? I know that there are lots of teaching families. Yeah I maybe and I think that teaching is often pitched really poorly to young people. It's such a fantastic career just working with kids is so cool and working with teenagers at a period of their life where they're so vulnerable and I had a pretty shitty teenage experience between 15 and 17 and I I really identified with those kids who were in a similar space where they were unsure of themselves and um, um, yeah trying to figure that out and writing terrible poetry about thoughts and dreams and gaping holes in their consciousness and all of those wonderful cliches that we now find in writing portfolio. I wonder how many teachers are actually out there recycling their own school lives. I think one of the problems with that, though, is that if we, you know, were dramary ATCL people or if we were really up for doing well in English when we were at school and then did our degrees, I, don't, I sometimes wonder how in touch we actually are with the lives of students who don't have that experience. Yeah, I think if I had been, like I wasn't ever a particularly studious student. I was bored easily and I talked too much. I was in, a huge daydreamer. It was in every single report, but I managed to do well in school. But I don't, if I were really studious, i I don't know if I'd have the same connection to rat bags as I do now. Yeah. And I'm drawn to rat bags and rat bags are drawn to me. But the studious are drawn to English teaching. And that's not to discredit that at all, but like no. just being being honest about who I am, you know. Yes. And of and course, I do think that the thing we do is teaching and mm -hmm. it's driven by our subject basis. And we, you know, I love our subject, but it's teaching that is the thing mm -hmm. that I'm alive to on a daily basis. 
Absolutely. I think I'd be just as passionate teaching chemistry. Well, I was just as passionate teaching aerobics, so. I can see that. So who are we to run this podcast? I hope that, I don't know, I hope that in sharing a view that it allows other teachers to think, oh, I, I feel the same way or I used to feel concerned about that and perhaps no, now I don't. I've been really lucky in my career that I've been able to present a lot and present at a national level and present at an international conference and have had some work published and now I'm on Enzate. And, and, and that's, um, I'm really proud of that achievement, but it's not through being what I would have considered the stereotype. I wonder if we have colleagues who would consider themselves to be part of that stereotype. If, we, if I think about what we might have in common, and we don't know each other so well, but one of the things that I sense we have in common is an irreverence for what we do. And mm. I think that's something that I'm kind of excited that the NZATE wants to encourage, is this yeah. quite irreverent take on the work. We're both super serious about it. We mm. want to be involved as much as we possibly can, but also we have a sense of humour about it. I'm hoping that our podcast will help to bring that to the surface. That That's probably something that a lot of English teachers would agree that we have in common is that we yeah. we take a kind of critical distance from things and I think English teachers in schools do that as well mm. but also at the same time I think question why 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 are we doing things that way yeah what's the what's the point like why do we teach that text or especially as the kid who was bored in class like oh god are we still are we doing that again I'm loath to repeat some of the practice that I experienced in the 90s so I guess we we might not take ourselves too seriously and we've got a sense of humour, but at the same time I'd like to think that I'm deeply critical and analytical of why we do what we do because it has to be interesting. Otherwise I'm going to get bored yeah. and have an identity crisis and leave yeah. the profession. The irreverent stance allows you to think critically about what you're doing. Like, yeah. I guess it's just about framing yourself as not being so embedded in it that you can't afford to criticise it or change anything. That having, having said that, I mean, I actually probably, I mean, I say probably as if this isn't as if this isn't something that can be determined. I actually teach texts on a reasonably regular basis that I was taught in secondary school. So I'm guessing that I'm bringing something new to those texts in other ways. The newness not being the text itself, but I think you know there would be a contrast between us because you get bored easily, and I don't even know what boredom is. I move so slowly, so we're probably coming at that from opposite ends. Can I ask you where you are now? Where do you teach at the moment? I'm teaching at Albany Senior High School, so I'm the head of English there. We've got a team of ten; they are phenomenal. Um, I am so lucky to have a, a team that is so deeply collaborative and happy and supportive of one another and capable. Um, and I've been there for two years, so not long. Um, and I live in Titarangi in West Auckland. And what about yourself, Chris? So I work at Christ's College in Christchurch. Name's Chris. I think there's something um, going on there. And I, I'm newly there. I've been there a year now. And come from previously having worked at Mount Aspiring College in Wanaka, so quite a shift really. I'm like you, team of nine tremendous people I work with in that place on the HOD and my goodness, I just feel a great sense of excitement about what's possible and the work that we're doing with each other. I 
can't wait to kind of put some of our ideas into action. They're full of ideas. We're doing things in really new ways. We've decided to reorganize our thinking about English so that it's essentially all about cognitive abstraction as opposed to texts. And they're just up for it. So um, we're having a great time. And I'll, I'll look forward to thrashing those things out, but also being cited in this nexus epicenter of Christchurch conservatism and discovering that it's not really that at all has been an interesting revelation for me finding the whole experience of being there interesting so that's pretty cool I've worked across the gamut in English teaching over the years too and I'm glad I have I'm glad I have before I landed somewhere like this too actually anyway this was just a little introduction we're going to be doing this podcast every fortnight at least for this year, to see how it goes. And we're going to be wanting to talk to people in our profession around the country and people who are associated and supporting our profession of English teaching. And we're going to want to hear voices. So another thing that we'd ask for you to think about is if you had the opportunity to speak to English teachers in New Zealand, what would you say? And so we'll try and stimulate that conversation. And obviously you're not going to agree with everything we say, so that would be a brilliant stimulus to get your voice to us. And associated with this podcast, we'll have a whole lot of means by which you can contact us or get your voice involved in what we're doing. This week we're speaking to Ruth Richardson, who's describing what Read NZ are up to. And I've got a poem from a poet, read by a poet, so that'll be fun. And that poem's called Recapture, and it's read to us by Liz Breslin. This is called Recapture, All I Ask Is. Prove that you're not a robot. Check all the boxes with crosswalks, traffic lights, fire hydrants, buses, trains. Prove that you're not a robot. Optimise, improve, do more, do right, write lists. Prove that you're not a robot, cry quiet with the rain, close your eyes, dream electric. Prove that you're not a robot so you can progress to the next screen and the next and check all the boxes with sidewalks so the robots can learn how to drive. Check the hydrants, stop at the lights. Prove that you have skin in the game. Pay with plastic, use adaptogens. You haven't touched another human in weeks. If a leaf falls, can you? If a leaf falls, can you? If a leaf falls, can you prove that you're not a robot? Teach the robots you know what's what. Check all the boxes with red lights, green. You cut, you bleed, you sew, you click. Prove that you're not a robot. Submit. Fantastic. So the poem itself, I'm interested in what inspired it. How did it come about? Um, I wrote it during the 2020 lockdown. And one of the things that inspired it was a call out for submissions for the online journal that it's on called Starsis, um, which is this great journal run by Sinead Overby and Jordan Hamill. And so that was kind of the impetus to put something together. But the other thing was it was kind of buzzing around in my head anyway because I I think like a lot of people were spending quite a lot of time online and a lot of the places I would go to would get me to prove that I wasn't a robot before I was allowed to access whatever the content was. And I was just 
I don't know, thinking about the bizarreness of that, of of not being with any people at all and the trickiness of having to prove that I was a person. And then, and then how, how do you do that in, you know, when you haven't touched another human in weeks? How do you even know that anymore? <laughs> yeah. Well, that brings to mind the Turing test. It's a one-to-one test. So you get an AI and a human both concealed so that the uh, person asking the questions can't tell which is which. And then they're asked the same questions. And the human who's asking the questions has to determine which one is the robot and which one is the human being. And of course, because I read so much science fiction, the question that your poem also brought to mind for me is, for me to prove I weren't a robot, I'd have to believe I was wasn't one mm-hmm. <laughs> or the other one I mean, that fascinating observation that really what we're doing is just a training the AI to um, drive cars so when I started doing some research in order to you know put the bits of the poem together around the 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 thoughts and the feelings I suppose I found out that's literally true that when we yeah. fill in those um, those nine box squares, that is what we're doing is we are training the AI in the same way as when you fill in that um, capture form and it gives you some letters. There's one particular way of doing that, that is rewriting books. And it's like how right. we're participating in the digitization of ourselves or something. It's, it's fascinating to me. Pretty much, yeah. yes. It's just, um, yeah, a kind of a mass exercise and gathering data about how humans make decisions. Isn't it fascinating? Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it's quite... But also scary. Yeah, I'm quite frightened by it. Um, and last year when I went back to look at the poem, I think I just read something, something like the Stepford Wives or... Right. I, you know, one of those kind of things. And I found actually from the end of it, a lot of the the pieces that I hadn't realized about sewing yourself together and the bleeding and the, and I realized that I'd obviously taken that from a, um, from a place I wasn't really aware of and how that all resonated with, with sewing yourself together as a person and putting yourself together in that way we're used to before um, you had to prove you weren't a robot. You had to, you're always having to prove you're a kind of person like that, I think. And that also kind of scared me that, it's something that's been going on forever, just not necessarily um, with the AI link. Well, I, I think also, I, I also reflect on the poem and relate, I mean, I love the poem, and I think it's because I've decided to internalise it. Um, <laughs> this idea of proving you're not something, it's not the same as proving you are something. That's the interesting thing about it. So, you know, you're stitching the thing together or the kind of presentation of something. It's, a, it's about the creation of an identity, whereas your recapture poem is about demonstrating you're not something. And now the conversation we're having at the moment is, Typically, possibly not exactly the conversation that teachers would have with their students in the classroom about that poem. I know myself that I'm often, especially if I'm not restraining myself, I'll often almost instantly go to form and structure. I'll start identifying features of the the poem. I'll look at how it's uh, presented on the page. I'll evaluate individual words and phrases and look for figurative effects and see what the repetition is trying to achieve and switch to analysis mode. Uh, Often when I'm talking to students about poetry, talk about the uh, notion of dissection, which seems to be an allied process, and how 
dissection and understanding the components of something can be quite hard if you haven't stepped back from it and seen it in action while it was still alive. And so uh, I, I try to restr- restrain myself from pulling it, poetry apart until I've had a little bit of time to, to engage with it, enjoy it in its sort of living state. Um, but at the same time, it's very much a joy and a pleasure to do that analysis and to read into poetry what it is that I think or the class thinks might be there. But since we've got you, the author, in place, I'd love to ask some questions about the process of writing and then also what you see in the poem, what you think is important in terms of its form. So could we start with the process? Like, how do you write a poem? Often it will be something that won't let me um, ignore it. So often it will come from a, a sound basis first, that there is a phrase um, that won't go away. And then I will start to think around that phrase or to what I'm trying to do more now is feel around that phrase. And then um, then there's often a, a research phase of what else can I put in there um, in this case, about how those um, recapture boxes do work, you know, and then um, getting everything down on the page. And then last of all, I will edit what I have written. And whether it's going to be a poem for the page or for the stage, because I also love doing, you know, more purely performance poetry, Um the editing process is still really important to me so that there are different hooks in and that is those things like the form and and the structure that you're talking about kind of like shining it up or something you know that's the the last phase that I will go through but for me through all those phases it's all um out loud as well as on the page like those two things have to work at the same time for me and it's quite heartening to hear that because I do feel that sometimes in English education we sometimes drive our students into poetry by starting with form, write a poem in this form and use these effects. And then, of course, they've got to supply the inspiration. And I think that can be quite challenging. Or we provide a kind of standard starter for everybody. And I know that that provides a kind of fairness because mm. you know, everyone can ultimately write something that fits the form of a sonnet, for example, but some topic material might not suit a sonnet. So interesting to see that you are operating on an affect level primarily and yeah. that the form kind of and structure comes after what sort of things do you like about that poem like what is it about it that you feel succeeded the things i think i like might be things you know different things to what other readers would like one thing that i love about it is the mood that i feel when i get to read it and i feel quite melancholy but also with the end line of being proved that you're not a robot submit I have this not really like comic melancholy but there's something of like really enjoying the absurdity of it so I I like the feeling that I get when I read it through I like the repetition because I feel like it's really true of what was happening at the time it's funny because there's been a few versions of it um, and in one version, I had something about dream her eyes, dream her eyes, dream electric, but I couldn't get it to work with the repetition of it. And 
but I'm still this. You didn't ask me what I don't like, but I'm still stuck on close your eyes, dream electric. I think there's something more that I meant there that I didn't quite get to. I also love how it stops in the middle. And there's that if a leaf falls, can you? I like how that takes you in and out of things. But I'm quite obsessed with with rhythms and with playing with them. So I like the way that works. Mm. I also like the, how that also echoes the um, experience of dropping out when you're having a conversation online and having to kind of return to the beginning of the sentence maybe more than once. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, again, I hadn't thought of that, but absolutely I love that. And that is one of the things I love about poems is they they be different things to different people and you don't have to – Yeah. I would never want to pretend that my interpretation is the is the right thing. It's only my side of the conversation. I wanted to sort of move on to the like this poem. One of the reasons that I asked if you might read this poem is because it's published online and people who might be interested in redeploying it in their classroom can have access to it. So I was wondering if we could have a quick chat about publishing your poetry freely online and where do you stand with that? It's great. It's fantastic. I mean, it's, uh, for me, the more people who have access to the more of, of the poems the better the Starsis journal the one that this was published on was fantastic in lockdown for the community of writers and that it carries on afterwards and you know can be fantastic for a community of readers it mm. is brilliant they actually did uh, so we'll provide links to the stasis journals and um also your poem thank you um another really interesting journal um again online so people can access it freely is um it was set up by louise wallace and it's called starling journal and i think it's 18 to 25 year olds but it's young new zealand writers being published and they've got some really beautiful content anything that you would like to say to the english teachers of the nation oh my gosh Chris! <laughs> english teachers of the nation thank you for loving the words So we're speaking with Ruth Richardson, who's here to talk about a few things, but one of them is Read NZ. And actually, Philly and I were just saying, we probably need to ask, what is Read NZ? Well, uh, Read NZ is the new name for the Book Council. Uh, used to be called that a couple of years ago, and they rebranded. It has a longer Māori name, uh, Read NZ Te Pau Muda Muda. What does the relationship between schools, English departments, and Read NZ look like for those departments or teachers that have a relationship with you guys at the moment? Well, I think that Read NZ, um, particularly at the moment, is trying to forge a really close relationship with teachers in classrooms. For example, I'm an English teacher. I don't really work for Read NZ. Um, normally, they've just asked for a group of us to form an advisory panel um, to read and select literature from New Zealand um, that we might like to recommend to New, Zeal uh, New Zealand English teachers. Um, but ordinarily, I think Read NZ are working to connect writers with schools and to produce uh, materials to uh, support the reading of New Zealanders, um, to help promote books um, to help get uh, reading as a method of enjoyment um, in the public sphere, in the public conversation. 
yeah, I think that's really their work. As I understand it, New Zealanders are great readers. So do you think it's been the book council or now Read NZ that, are, that sits behind that? I think they do excellent work, but I don't know to what degree we can credit them with um, great reading statistics. I'm also not really sure if we are great readers. <laughs> it's an interesting claim, isn't it? Yeah. Perhaps there's some other factors that affect the frequency with which we read and, and the degree to which we love it. Well, we're all English teachers. What are your, what are your thoughts about reading at the moment? Well, I mean, reading's always been wonderful, hasn't it? It's um, so important for the development of empathy and language and um, I would say intelligence. I mean, for civic conversation, I think there's nothing more fundamental than a strong um, literary skill, a uh, um, literacy skill, I suppose I should say. Um, So, yeah, I think reading informs that, doesn't it? And, you know, we all love it, of course, but we don't just love it because of the literature. We love it because of the way that it underpins conversation, it underpins um, our understanding of who we are as people. Um, And don't we love to see our students expressing themselves having an understanding of their own emotional state and being able to explain that to somebody else, fundamental for well-being. So I think there's lots of reasons why reading is so vital. There are, there are challenges, though, out there at the moment to our uh, engagement with reading. What role does reading play in your classroom? In the junior school, we probably talk more about reading for pleasure than we do in the senior school, although we do do the um, reading log standard. We do talk a bit about reading for pleasure in that context, but Mm. call me cynical. Some of our students really don't read in that context either. Mm. Chris, do you do 2.9? No, because it's kind of the death of the joy of reading, isn't it, that standard? (laughs) (laughs) It, It turns the whole reading exercise into some kind of burden that the students must fulfil and we must have them attest to. I just personally feel burdened by the marking of the standard. It is ridiculous. It's it's hard, a hard (laughs) slog. I can remember when I last taught it and just pushing them through the standard and chasing them in my non-contacts for about a month, just around different classrooms, knocking on science classrooms, interrupting everyone to be like, sorry, can I please borrow Sarah? for five minutes to do a verbal resubmission for this one sentence, which I think will get them over the line. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I found it arduous, but that's obviously a standard that you've, you've had success with in your practice. How do you do it? Oh, the marking is ridiculous, but sometimes the students are really engaged and they talk um, quite animatedly with their peers about what they've been reading and what could be more delicious. We also have um, some students that just read the cliff notes or the the online, you know, summaries of the work. I'm sure. I'm sure. Or watch the film. <laughs> I'm fairly confident I did that at a university level. If I'm honest, I think I may have actually bluffed that exam <laughs> writing about a book that I hadn't even read which is sort of both a high point and a low point at the same time mm-hmm. but here we are here we are do you have a text Ruth that you love to teach I actually really love Feed by M.T. Anderson and I know it's controversial but I teach it at year 12 and I love it because it's technology focus is so relevant and the consumer culture Uh, focus is really something that impresses itself on students. 
I do love New Zealand Lit, though, and the Red NZ project that I'm working on has definitely um, galvanised my interest in New Zealand Lit. I've always enjoyed teaching Hone Tufari's poems. He's so funny. My favourite of his is um, to, to a chief statue outside the post office in central Auckland. I love the humour in that poem, how can you be so gracious as to approach the you know, colonial subjugation, I guess, of your people with such mm. light humour. Mm. Um, yeah, I love Hone Tufare. I love Silly Ntusi Talamash. Um, a recent love is Tay Tibble. Um, her editorial on Skucks being Skucks changed my life. And when you're thinking forward as a teacher, what are you looking forward to at the moment? Um, I'm looking forward to professionally uh, growing our Kopapa Māori theory resources for Year 13. Mm. I think the Māori worldview and philosophy is really fascinating and there's lots of opportunity to get students engaged through a Kopapa Māori lens. How are you thinking of implementing that? Is it a 2022 think tank or... Um, have you got things in the work at the moment? I've got some things in the work at the moment. I just think they're a little light. I need mm. a bit more meat in the resource pack that I have already. And the Mātauranga Māori as well, it's the same thing, isn't it? Looking at traditional Māori forms of literature, such as waiata and haka and some of these other genres. Um, how interesting could that be for us to be studying next year and building resources on? Yeah, and if you think, I was thinking of the, um, as you were saying, that the new 1.2 standard, which is kind of like the the Frankenstein of close viewing and oral or visual text. Yes. I believe it's been problematic in the past to, to write about texts that are in te reo Māori for um, assessments within the English curriculum. For example, I had a student who was writing about pepeha and mm. how the, the role of pepeha and kapahaka within a particular performance piece of performance poetry, the impact that that had, and it was going to be a, a, a visual analysis like a, a, or an analysis of an oral text rather. Um, but it, we ran into problems because that particular text type didn't really fit within mm. the conventions of the standards as they stood. But but as you're saying, like there is so much potential to bring that that oratory and and that the, those tra uh, traditions of performance into our curriculum area a lot stronger. What's your opinion about the predominance of online reading these days? I don't think we learn that well online. But when we're reading on our computer screen, I think we skim and we scan. And I think that you you don't get the opportunity to find answers to questions that you hadn't thought to ask yet because you're going with a question in mind, you're looking for a specific answer, and so you're not really letting the writer talk to you about the things that are important to them. You have an agenda. So, yeah, I think it compromises the value of reading. At the same time, um, people have access now to writing that's produced from a whole lot of new and different contexts and it doesn't have to go through the kind of formal processes of publication, which I, which I think in some senses is providing people with access to literature that they might not have known existed previously. This is true, and literature is being defined through those forms, isn't it? Redefined even. Yeah, we're just developing a social media unit for our year 10s, and I'm quite excited to look at that more linguistics sort of um, analysis of social media forms and genres. I think that could be very fun. 
it's also interesting. I mean, it, um, I'm an 80s child, uh, or is it a secondary school in the 80s? And I, I'm a 70s child, actually. Um, but the, um, the experience of communicating with my peers was either verbal in person or on the telephone, you know, mm. wired to the wall. We didn't write to each other. In fact, I don't think I did any kind of interpersonal writing, except for maybe to my father once a year, my wow. ra- rather distant father. So these days they're writing to each other all the time, possibly mm. in quite um, modified forms, but there's a lot of text transferring backwards and forwards between people. There is so much language being exchanged, but I wonder in lots of classrooms if there's increasingly there's become less of a focus on language. And I mean, that's what the new standards are doing, right? They're pulling mm. us back to what the English, what the intention of the English curriculum is. So that was one thing I noticed with the new standards was like, gosh, we're, we're going to have to read a lot more and we're going to have to write a lot more. And we'll have to be examining language a lot more. I find that yeah. exciting. It's a really positive thing. Hmm. I also think that that can be a really good way into reading for people is sort of getting them excited about language. Is there, a, is there a really crazy thing that you've had to do as a teacher in your time? I don't feel that things are too partic- particularly crazy, although I did have to confiscate um, some tomatoes from one of my year 12s one year. Um, at the pop-up Globe Theatre, as they were about to throw them at the stage, they had Brilliant. taken me a little too seriously. That's one of those, like, I have to tell you off because it's my job, but, God, that's good. That's yeah. Like, oh, God, a bag of tomatoes. Brilliant. Oh, and they're all soggy. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm sure the actors would have loved it as well. I really think they would have loved it. Mm. I am... Um, <laughs> worked at a school I wasn't a part of this particular exchange but I worked at a school and one time they went on an overseas exchange and the teachers had accidentally booked them into a brothel (laughs) (laughs) what's one thing that you think teachers can do to get their students really engaged in reading and loving it oh I think when teachers love reading then they're infectious when they talk to students about it so I think the very best thing you could do is be a reader yourself and love it Reading aloud, I think, they love that, no matter what mm. age they are. I've um, sometimes read, if a student's had trouble reading independently, I've read that book at the same time and mm. been available for conversations about it, which I think has given them a bit of accountability, which gives them a wee push, but also feels quite close. I haven't actually taught a novel since I've been working in an open plan environment. Are they connected, those two things? I'm not too sure. I really enjoy teaching in an open plan environment for lots of reasons. I do feel like some of the the magic can be lost with that sense of like a community where your students walk in the door and you close the door and you're able to say, oh my gosh, guess what? I finished that chapter or you've got to read this. I know you'll absolutely love it. You, that that the, the energy kind of bleeds out in mm. in an open plan environment where if you close the door in a single cell classroom you can harness that and capture that and that kind of that electricity can fuel your practice we also know that you're involved in another project called and the only thing i know about it is that it's called the evo or evo project i don't know even how to say the the uh, title of it well this is a new initiative that a and a student's father has begun in his uh, retirement years he would like to create a charitable organization to uh, spread enthusiasm for literature 
Uh, and his methodology is to create short-form, professionally-produced videos of great works of literature that could be put, put online, stored online, which students could access. The theory is that when literature is read well by professional actors, um, then students are more able to understand the work as well as engage with it. I'm particularly interested as a teacher in the idea that you could have a work and performance that the student can manipulate, can fast forward, can rewind, mm. can play over and over again to build their comprehension. I think that could be very powerful in the classroom. Um, so his vision is to, well, I guess our shared vision now is to um, put together a bank of videos um, that will be freely accessible to everybody, but English teachers would have a login and there'd be back-end materials to support the work of the teacher in the classroom and the use of the videos. So um, my role with Evo is to produce some lesson materials to go with each video, and teachers will have free access to that, whereas students won't. We're also thinking maybe some analysis notes, maybe some interviews with writers or interviews with directors. We're just shooting our first videos at the moment. Michael Hurst is uh, shooting, uh, what is that, that Honey Too Fuddy, No Ordinary Sun and Rain are going to be recorded. And we've also got the Te Reo Māori version of the same, directed by Ranier, uh, professor at Auckland University. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting, but very early days. We'll probably mm. be launching sometime partway through next year, I'd say. That sounds amazing. Yes, and I think we're going to mostly focus towards New Zealand Lit at the beginning, mm. and then later we'll go wider. That's a great resource also for oral text. Something I did this year was combine writing portfolio with oral text, um, and there were students who got excellence who – ordinarily wouldn't have even set the standard because mm. the piece of writing that they well, the, the, the writing that they created was it was about them their life was in that language and then when they read it out that natural intonation was there and so to record to have these recordings that had like a black screen but in the style of an mm. audiobook they were stunning mm. to listen to is there anything that concerns you about the future from what, where you sit at the moment, especially in the world of English teaching or reading? Yeah, I worry about declining literacy. I, I suspect all of us do. I'm worried that um, students don't understand the formal register. Um, and while I actually like the language play that there is online, social media language is pretty fascinating. I understand how grammatically taxing some of that stuff is. I still think that um, they need formality for work and for um, reading some of our great works of literature. So I think that that worries me. <laughs> and it worries me for our subject because our subject hitherto has been built on f formal language construction. What are some of the things that you've done in your own practice that have woven the teaching of language? Oh, that's such a challenge, isn't it? Mm. I really think that the best thing I can do is go into their language context and teach them to observe um, and to play, you know, with the observations. So, um, as I say, we've developed we're developing a year ten social media unit. Really, it's about 
um, going online and observing what's being used um, in terms of the visual language, the oral language, the written language, uh, making um, some and analytical arguments, looking at audience, looking at purpose. We do. I did the same with an oral unit, language of conversation, and sent the kids out to do some surveying of the language they could hear spoken. Uh, and I think those sorts of things feed the interest in language. So then when you go into a formal context, they think that's your context, don't they? But don't you have the relational street cred to ask them to come into your world for a while given that you've just been in theirs <laughs> I would agree I got a project that I do with students that sounds quite allied to what you're talking about where they mm. first of all record each other's interpersonal speech and then I make the hypothesis that online communication is just a form of spoken language type yeah. mm-hmm. and and all the and all the modifications that are done are largely there to convey the material that you get when you speak all the yes. all the paralinguistic components and then we look at how those things are reflected in the ways that language has changed and they, I mean they do get pretty interested in it to be honest yeah. especially when you start being able to identify that you could analyze a text and determine things like people's age location yeah ethnic background and you know all those sorts of things start to come out and they start realizing that the language is operating like a bit of a code as it does as we know but they they, yeah I I think that's a great way in what year do you do that with Chris usually 11 or 12 yeah Yeah. I I did it this year in year 12 in preparation for studying Hamlet just keeping in the oral language world and, and in the way that the way someone's speaking might convey things about their affect. Playing with natural curiosity, isn't it? Yes. Like, aren't we all just code cracking all the time? Yeah, exactly. And Thank you so much for spending this time with us on your last night of the of the year. That's really appreciated. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Do you have any hopes for how this podcast will go? Do you want something from it? Hopes, hopes and dreams for this is that we get people engaging and disagreeing and participating in the corridor, that there's discussion outside of this on various platforms and that through this we're developing a collective understanding of what our job is and developing, I guess, thinking of John Hattie and that idea of collective efficacy, that we can do that through so many different channels, mm. whether it's PD in our own school or if it's just talking about our practice between you and I and other people who are joining us and then sharing that. We've both um, been involved in the professional development from NZATE, which was the mm. program development, and the people that came along to those sessions where we talked about, right, We've got change coming. What can we do with that? Were so inspiring, weren't they? They were so, and and I was, I was particularly impressed with the English teachers who were all showing up in force and looking at completely redoing everything they do in the classroom and doing so with such enthusiasm. It was just great. Yeah, and we've got a bit of that to do ahead of 2024 now. So I hope that um, we're able to have conversations about how we can do things differently. Yeah. And better how we can challenge the status quo and meet the needs of our learners and our communities in all areas across the motu so um i'm all in 